0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study This brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 47, the book of Revelation, chapter 21. The first words of Genesis are, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The first words of Revelation chapter 21 are, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the whole old earth had passed away. If Genesis 1 is the book of beginning, then Revelation 21 is the book of New Beginning, a sort of Genesis the sequel. Now we're going to have a lot to talk about in regards to Revelation 21 and 22, and some of it will be theological, some of it will be scientific. That combination may bother a few of you, however it should not. Science and theology were not always polar opposites, even mortal enemies. Until perhaps 300 years ago, the brightest minds that studied the stars and the heavens and the nature of the earth, they did so in the mindset that they were engaged in a process of discovering what God had done and is doing what we today would call scientific method was not formulated to find a naturalistic way of explaining how the universe was just spontaneously created and and, and independently operates, but rather it was to investigate the physical cosmos in order to bring to light the order and the function of the God-created creation. Now, N.T. Wright says that the essence of theology is trying to think straight about who God is. That is what Galileo, Copernicus, Sir Isaac Newton, and others were attempting in their inquiries and curiosity about the workings of the earth, and the vast expanse full of both lights and darkness that floated above their heads. They were specifically seeking the relationships and the divine purposes of all these mysterious phenomena that is the same spirit in which we shall engage our journey of discovery into the new heaven and new earth, as described in Revelation 21 and 22. So, let's begin by rereading Revelation 21. Open your Bibles to Revelation 21. If, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1553. And follow along with me, please. 1553, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no longer there. I also saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, see, God Shekinah is with mankind and He will live with them. They will be His people and He Himself, God with them, will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain because the old order has passed away. Then the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Also, He said, right. These words are true and trustworthy. And he said to me, it's done. I am the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. And to anyone who is thirsty, I myself will give water free of charge from the fountain of life. He who wins the victory will receive these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the untrustworthy and the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those involved with the occult and with drugs, idol worshippers, all liars, their destiny is the lake burning with fire and sulfur, the second death. One of the seven angels, having the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, approached me and said, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me off in the spirit "...to the top of a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and it had the Shekinah of God, so that its brilliance was like that of a priceless jewel, like a crystal-clear diamond. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, at the gates were twelve angels, and inscribed on the gates were the names of the twelve tribes of Israel." And there were three gates to the east, and three to the north, and three to the south, and three to the west. And the walls of the city were built on twelve foundation stones. And on these were the twelve names of the twelve emissaries of the Lamb. The angel speaking with me had a gold measuring rod with which to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And the city is laid out in a square, its length equal to its width. And with his rod, he measured the city at 1,500 miles, with length, width, and height the same. He measured its wall at 216 feet by human standards of measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of diamond, the city of pure gold resembling pure glass. The foundations of the city wall were decorated with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation stone was diamond, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh uh, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh turquoise, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The city's main street was pure gold, transparent as glass. Now, I saw no temple in the city. For Adonai, God of heaven's armies, is its temple, as is the Lamb. The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, because God Shekinah gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Its gates will never close. They stay open all day, because night will not exist there. And the honor and splendor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure may enter it, nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only ones who may enter are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now because the relationship between Genesis 1 and and 21.1 is self-evident, then before we explore the new heavens and and earth, we we might loosely dub the re-creation. Let's take a little bit of time to discuss the present heavens and earth that is the original creation. And I want to alleviate some of your worry right up front. This is not going to be a debate of old earth versus new earth, young earth worldviews, and we're not going to essentially restudy the book of Genesis. Rather, we're going to have our discussion on the foundational basis that Seed of Abraham Torah class was formed. It is that the only credible way. To understand the Bible is if we relent from trying to force upon it our modern ways of thinking and how we see the world and the universe. The Bible is cultural specific. That is to say, this ancient book was written by and to Hebrews. It was written in the context of their understanding of the world and the, and, and the universe at that time not ours in the 21st century it is their perspective that we're seeking to grasp it is their priorities and concerns and values that together with their language form their unique culture at the same time The biblical culture in the the first, say, hundred years from Adam and Eve and then to the time of Noah and then on to Abraham and then on to Christ and finally to John, it evolved and it changed. Sometimes centuries passed between the times of these several giants of the Bible. And just like today as knowledge and technology advances in our era, it also advanced over those several centuries that the Bible covers. So, thus, so did some of their viewpoints about the earth they lived on, and on the heavens, and to some degree even about God. See, we we like to say today that human culture, uh, human uh, rather, nature is and has always been universal, human nature. And while that may be true, culture is anything but universal. Therefore, if we are to discover truth in God's word, we must approach it by admitting that its precious words mean whatever it is that each Books author intended them to mean at the time he wrote them. So let's take a look at how those who wrote the Bible thought about the world and the universe from their cultural perspective. To begin, they made no separation between the natural and the supernatural as we do today. In fact, the way we think of the word nature or natural today is not only entirely different from what the ancients thought, it's different from what we English speakers thought only a couple of decades ago. If we look up the word nature in a dictionary... It says something on the order of all physical phenomena including things like weather organisms landforms celestial bodies humans and much more. Now, most of us wouldn't argue with that definition of nature. However, within the last 20 years or so, humans humans have been removed from the classification of being part of nature, and now humans are seen more as in opposition to or even an enemy of nature. But to the biblical writers and to all the many peoples of the ancient Near East, the word nature had no such meaning. Rather, nature, to them, merely meant the inherent characteristics of something, that is, God's nature or human nature, for example. So we won't find the English word nature or its equivalent in the Bible. Older New Testaments, which references animals and plants and trees and rivers and the stars or anything like that. And since that's the case, we also don't find the word supernatural or its equivalent anywhere in the Bible. Now to the ancients including in in, uh, John's era God or gods controlled and dictated everything that existed everything that happened. And while we can look at a beautiful green forest of trees as nature and natural they would see it all as more a product and process strictly brought about by and for the divine. A forest had a certain mystery to it. God or gods were involved in everything, no exceptions. So while we modern believers subconsciously think of biblical miracles as supernatural... No such thought would have invaded the mind of a biblical writer. Rather, a miracle was merely a particularly awesome, maybe an unexpected display of divine power. But it was the same divine power that every day caused new life to be formed in the womb of a mother a stock of corn to grow from what seems to be a dead and dried up seed or water to fall from the clouds to irrigate crops and refill rivers. And especially as it concerns our study of the new heavens and new earth of Revelation and its relationship to the original creation of Genesis we must also understand that when we read the creation story, it was not intended as a scientific journal article. There was no intent to explain how or even when things were done. But rather, it was all about who did it and what the purpose and the function of each and every component of creation was now as difficult as it might be to wrap our minds around it when we read in Genesis for example of the creation of lights in the sky we read nothing about their material nature rather only about their place and their purpose and their function in creation In the case of lights, the Genesis passage says that they were created to inform humans about uh, uh, about signs, in other words, communications from God, and to help us identify seasons and days and years and to provide light for the earth. So it's all about the purpose and function. Today we can look up and think of those lights like the sun and the moon and the stars and even the planets as objects, physical, tangible things. Some that with the right technology we could even travel to and visit someday. But the ancients had no such thoughts. The lights in the sky were simply light how that light was emitted was of no interest the moon for instance was a light only a light that early astronomers upon the invention of telescopes in the early 1600s discovered that the moon was actually a tangible object and not just a, a ball of light that went through many phases over a month that was completely unknown in biblical times The ancients pictured the sky as this solid dome with light sort of embossed on it. They called it the firmament. And since Genesis tells us that God made this dome and he did it for a reason, It was to separate the water above it from the water below it, the seas. Well, then what else could the sky be but something solid and impenetrable if its purpose was to hold back the celestial waters? They had no uh, technology to explore their assumption and see how God might have done this. Besides, their interest was not in how or when these things happened, but rather what the order and the function of these things were and where they as humans fit into all of it. And as perhaps one last example that hits a little closer to home, later when God gave to Moses the Torah, God provided a list of items that were permissible as food for his worshipers. Today, among those who are committed to eating kosher, many think that those items make up the healthiest of all possible diets. And that the reason God allowed certain animals to be eaten but not others is because of their health effects. But that's not how the biblical writers thought about it. Illness and bad health for them was just a function of their relationship with their god or gods. Illness was seen as a punishment for displeasing behavior. See, they had no knowledge of germs or bacteria or the human metabolism or cellular reproduction or any of this. Those items that Moses said were suitable for food was a dictate from the God of Israel for His own good reasons and nothing more. There was no real discernible logic to it as it seems many today keep trying to find because that's the way our Greek-oriented modern minds have been taught to think. Every effect has a cause. Every cause has an effect. To the ancients, cause and effect were a function of the gods. To us moderns, cause and effect is a function of our choices and our behaviors or maybe the result of the the physical properties of some object or organism. In the time that Moses lived, there was no thought about what physical objects consisted of. A rock was a rock, wood was wood, water was water. Therefore we won't read about any such things as elements in the creation account in Genesis. Yet, by New Testament times, the idea of every physical thing that existed consisting of some combination of of known elements was well established now these elements for them were only four earth, wind, water and fire even the apostle Peter thought in terms of the earth and the universe consisting of elements as its basic underlying structure and we're going to soon read about that now I've told you all of this For one reason. To encourage you to put aside your notions and even good verifiable knowledge about how our physical world and universe operates as you read the Bible and especially as we read the last two books of Revelation. First, because the Bible was not written for that purpose. And second, because what the biblical writers knew and how they perceived their world and how they communicated it is entirely different than how you or I do. We have to try to enter their minds and their world in order to extract the truth that we seek. In order to cross these vast barriers of time and culture, and properly apply it all to our lives in our world. So the next thing I want to explore now is this amazing connection between redemption and creation. Paul makes that connection for us in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 we read, Therefore, if anyone is united with the Messiah, he is a new creation. The old is past. Look, what has come is fresh and new. Now, becoming united with Christ is just Paul's way of saying redeemed in this narrative. And he says that being recreated is the automatic result of being redeemed. And by the way, for those who love the King James Bible, and it is a very good Bible, this is one verse that has been poorly translated. Instead of becoming a new creation, the King James Version says we become a new creature. See, the Greek word being translated is kitesis, and it speaks of a process, not an object. So Katesis is the is the process of founding or establishing something. It's not the thing itself. Believers become the visible, tangible evidence of the process of new creation that itself is the proof of our redemption. But we don't become new creatures. Thus, human redemption inherently involves an act of creation, or better, recreation. It moves us from something old to something new. This same God principle extends to the earth and to the universe. In fact, to use the language that I've used in other lessons, I would say that it extends to everything that makes up the four-dimensional universe in which we live and we can observe. So God is not out, I want you to hear this, God is not out simply to redeem humanity. Rather, He has always been out to redeem His entire creation. Humankind is important to God, but we're not Everything, and were not the only thing of value in God's creation. For when Adam sinned, it didn't just introduce evil and decay into himself or only into mankind that would spring from him. It infected every aspect of our four-dimensional universe. Therefore, God determined he was going to have to redeem it all. And since God's designed redemption process inherently involves recreating, that is what we witness beginning with the first words of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. Paul wasn't the first to fully recognize this principle in connection of redemption with recreation. The prophet Isaiah laid it all out in Isaiah chapter 65. And we're not going to read it all, so I'm going to set the scene for you. God is disciplining and calling out inhabitants of earth for their unfaithfulness at the same time he's going to deliver them he's going to redeem them from their grievous offenses against him and then it all winds up with something new starting at Isaiah 65 1 I made myself accessible to those who didn't ask for me I let myself be found by those who didn't seek me I said here I am here I am to a nation not caused not called by my name. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who live in a way that is not good, who follow their own inclinations, a people who provoke me to my face all the time. Sacrificing in gardens, burning incense on bricks. They sit among the graves, they spend the night in caverns, they eat pig meat. And their pots hold soup made from disgusting things. They say, keep your distance, don't come near me, because I'm holier than you. These are smoke in my nose. It's a fire that burns all day. See, it is written before me, I'll not be silent until I repay them. I will repay them to the full. We move down a few verses to verse 9. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, heirs of my mountains from Judah. My chosen ones will possess them and my servants will live there. The Sharon will be a pastor for flocks. The Akor Valley a place for cattle to rest for my people who have sought me. But as for you who abandon Adonai, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for a a, a gad, a god of luck, and you fill bowls of mixed wine for many, A God of destiny, I'll destine you to the sword. You will all bow down to be slaughtered, because when I called, you did not answer. And when I spoke, you did not hear. But you did what was evil from my point of view and chose what did not please me. Moving down a little further, Isaiah 65.16 Thus someone on earth who blesses himself will bless himself by the God of truth. And someone on earth who swears an oath will swear by the God of truth. For past troubles will be forgotten. They will be hidden from my eyes. For look, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Past things will not be remembered. They will no more come to mind. That's a great promise. So even though I wonder... Isaiah or even his audience really comprehended the fully literal nature of God creating a new heavens and a new earth in the future the important principle was established that redemption and recreation cannot be separated from one another it's a package deal But we also must not overlook that Isaiah prophesied the creation of a new heavens and a new earth to replace the existing ones eight centuries before John's day. Eight centuries. This is knowledge that did not escape that simple fisherman, Peter. Although I suspect that it was probably his master, Yeshua, Yeshua, that taught this to him in one of the many encounters he had with his 12 disciples that aren't recorded in the New Testament. In 2nd Peter starting in chapter 3, 3, we read this. Dear friends, I'm writing you now this second letter, and in both letters I'm trying to arouse you to wholesome thinking by means of reminders, so that you will keep in mind the predictions of the holy prophets and the command given by the Lord and Deliverer through your emissaries. First, understand this. During the last days, scoffers will come following their own desires and asking, So where is this promised coming of his? For our fathers have died and everything goes on just as it's been since the beginning of creation. But wanting so much to be right about this, they overlooked the fact that it was by God's word that long ago there were heavens and there was land which arose out of the water and it existed between the waters and that by means of these things the world at that time was flooded with water and destroyed. It is by that same word that the present heavens and earth having been preserved are being kept for fire until the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed moreover dear friends do not ignore this with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day the Lord's not slow in keeping his promises as some people think of slowness on the contrary he's patient with you For it's not his purpose that everyone should be destroyed, but that everyone should turn from his sins. However, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will melt and disintegrate. And the earth and everything in it will be burned up since everything is going to be destroyed like this what kind of people should you be? you should lead holy and godly lives as you wait for the day of God and work to hasten its coming that day will bring on the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt from the heat but we, following along with his promise We will wait for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will be at home. Peter recognizes the connection between redemption and recreation. He speaks of a literal new heavens and new earth. But what is even more fascinating is that Because by his time, the belief was well established that all physical things were composed of elements, something that modern science certainly agrees with. He even gives us the means by which the old heavens and earth are going to disappear and a new heavens and earth will replace them. He says the elements that currently form all things are going to melt and disintegrate and it will be caused by intense heat however this is not something the redeemed should worry about rather it's something we should welcome because he says but we following along with his Christ's promise wait for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness will be at home That is, whereas the current heavens and earth have been irretrievably corrupted by evil and sin, and so that has become its nature, righteousness is not at home in this universe. But the nature of the new heavens and new earth will be inherently righteousness. So the new heavens and the new earth will not be a redecorating, remodeling, or a thorough scrubbing of sin out of the old. While because of God's patterns and principles, the new heavens and earth will have some familiarities, some similarities to the old, all will be brand new, right down to the elemental level. Now I want to take a minute or two to tell you how scientists now believe creation happened and after our discussion I think you'll notice how biblically familiar it sounds and believe me on the one hand scientists are thrilled to discover this creation process but on the other hand it leaves them with an uncomfortable dilemma that they have no means to solve. The dilemma is that lacking another explanation, something or someone has to have initiated the creation process and whatever it was had to exist before it began. The most currently accepted theory of creation in the science world is that a long time ago, all matter and energy was compacted down to a tiny point. Essentially, that tiny point was the entire universe. Then for some inexplicable reason, it exploded. And it expanded at an unimaginable rate. Now, what's important for our purposes today is that through years of scientific inquiry, the evidence is clear and consistent that the first elements formed in the universe, that is, those first building blocks of the physical material universe, were the simplest ones. Hydrogen and Helium. But those two elements still comprise the bulk of free-floating elements in the universe today. But with the intense heat of that creation explosion still lingering, those Hydrogen and Helium elements, by means of the process of continuing fusion, added more electrons and protons to their atoms and they became other elements. And through that same intense heat, those and other newer elements, they fused together with yet other free floating electrons and protons and they became even more elements. And in time elements like nitrogen and oxygen, carbon, even heavy metals like iron and gold were formed. Then, as the amount of them increased, they collided with each other. They clung together. Eventually, they formed enough mass to put gravity to work. And so larger and larger and larger objects in space emerged over eons of time. The point is this. While in no way was Peter speaking to us in scientific terms. And remember, when he spoke of elements, he was only thinking in terms of wind, earth, fire, and water, which scientifically speaking aren't elements at all. He had learned about the general process of the ending of the universe and the recreation of a new one, and he is Passing it along to his readers. It was going to involve, he says, intense heat, melting what exists back into basic elements, and then using those elements in a reforming of the earth and the entire universe. Yet, as we're going to see in Revelation 21 and 22, the new creation bears striking differences from the original creation. Now there remains one more issue I'd like to approach. The issue of the freedom of the creation to have choices and even itself to create. Now a hotly debated theological issue is this. Does God's creation have a certain level of freedom divinely built into it such that while God actively oversees it all, directs and guides it all to his intended goals, can creation move forward and itself create? I'm not at all implying Darwinian evolution. Rather, it is that God made a very particular kind of creation that expresses His glory and His love. And love for His creation includes certain freedoms that He gave to it. I will give you an example, example, an obvious example of that freedom because it's inherent to humanity. God has given us The freedom of choice. This choice presents itself in two segments of our lives. Preference and morality. Within the segment of preference, we find such choices as the kind of ice cream we like, our favorite color, where we want to live, the job or career we choose, and so on within the segment of morality it boils down to God giving us the freedom to choose to love Him or not to trust and obey Him or not but is it it only humans that have such freedom can created animals have a level of freedom They don't have moral choices before them, but I've had enough pets to know that animals definitely have preferences. How about plants? Do created plants have freedom? Well, plant biologists are aware that plants can spontaneously evolve and develop their own insect resistance, or develop a tolerance for cold or heat or even drought. It's not that plants have human-like intelligence or that they make conscious decisions or that they self-evolve in such a way completely independent from God's purpose for them. Rather, it is that the Creator has created them in such a way as to do exactly what they're doing to achieve God's will. And it seems God has put some boundaries to how far That they may extend that freedom. For instance, a plant is not allowed by God to eventually develop a brain or arms and legs. And yet, God's creation, that was not created on its own, also cannot sustain itself on its own. It can only continue to exist by God's power in His love for it. Colossians 1.14-17 It is through His Son that we have redemption. That is, our sins have been forgiven. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He is supreme over all creation because in connection with him were created all things, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, lordships, rulers or authorities. They have all been created through him and for him. He existed before all things and he holds everything together. So it's my belief that God created his creation with sufficient freedom to itself create in a measured way defined by him. To be clear, it's not the same type of creation that God did who created everything from nothing. God's creation is finite unless Unlike himself, who is infinite, infinite. And it is God who ordered creation and God who gave everything its purpose and its function. So God's creation does not have the freedom to change itself into something entirely different. Something that God has not created it for. A spider can't become a lion a tree can't become a fish soil can't become water but tectonic plates can move they can cause earthquakes reshape continents sea levels can rise and fall changing coastal geography mountains can erupt and erode rivers can change course Rich savannas can become barren deserts. Stars can explode, sending their material into the vastness of space so that new cosmic bodies are formed. God has seen fit not to create a static heavens and earth that never changes, but rather one that constantly changes even producing new things from time to time. It's His will that it do so. Now, how about the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 21? Will it too have this same built-in freedom? Or will it be permanently static? because it has been perfected what can be achieved beyond perfection we're going to eventually address that question but one major thing will change upon the new heaven and new earth and it's this the Torah will be no more as of the re-creation Of the new heaven and new earth, the law of Moses is abruptly abolished. Christ directly promised both that the Torah would remain in place and in force until the new heaven and earth arrived, and upon that event end. Matthew five, seventeen through eighteen. Don't think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uterus stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not till everything that must happen has happened. You see how this all pulls together? The conditions of the earth and the universe are going to be so radically different the Lord's determination, even having the law of Moses, will no longer be appropriate. Remember, the main purpose for the Torah is to reveal God's holiness and sovereignty and to set down rules of behavior for his worshipers and a justice system to deal with the violators. Further, it sets up a system for atoning for bad behavior. Sin? Sin? And so being able to return to peace with God. Redemption. But perhaps the reason it will no longer be needed is because humanity will no longer sin. But how is that possible? On the surface, it's because Satan has been permanently placed into the lake of fire. And because the new heavens and new earth are now as fresh and uncorrupted as they were before Satan deceived Adam and Eve to disobey God. And yet, Revelation chapter 20 taught us that even though Satan was locked away from influencing humanity for a thousand years, evil still lurked in the hearts and the minds of many who lived during the millennium and in Christ's presence no less. It may well be that humankind in whatever form we're going to exist when the new heaven and earth arrive will have no evil inclination within us to lead us astray. So we won't make bad moral choices because there's none to make. Not only will the law be gone, but perhaps so will our ability to be disobedient sounds great, doesn't it? But the implication of this is enormous. I've taught you that one of the underlying governing dynamics of the universe is that it is a universe of opposites. If there's light, there's darkness. If there is up, there's down. If there's far, there's near. If there is positive, there is negative. If there is life, there is death. And if there is good, there is evil. And as we look at what Revelation 21 and 22 has to say about the new heaven and earth, could it be that the recreation will no longer be one of opposites? However, if there is no opposites... Does not that eliminate or at least greatly limit the very notion of choice? Could it be that the new creation or the recreation of heaven and earth will be missing the built in freedom that God gave to his original creation? Does that mean that his new creation has no ability? to itself create, and thus although the new heaven and earth will be an eternal, peaceful paradise, it will be an entirely unchanging one? We'll begin to address that and more next week.